The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And this is another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we have the writer-director of one of the funniest movies of all time that turns 40 this week. And then he did a complete 180 and made one of the most romantic movies of all time. All that and more on this week's edition of It Happened in Hollywood. have something very exciting uh, lined up for you. We have Jerry Zucker. Jerry does not do a lot of interviews, but he said yes to me, and how thrilling. The subject was ostensibly ghost, but it's almost impossible to talk to Jerry and not mention the movies he made with his brother, David Zucker. And those were Airplane, Airplane 2, the uh, Naked Gun films, and uh, Top Secret with Val Kilmer, which is a favorite of mine. And it's so interesting that he is responsible for both of those worlds because uh, you wouldn't, watching them, think that the guy who made Airplane made Ghost, uh, that supernatural, highly romantic, you know, afterlife uh, movie with uh, Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze, but he did. And uh, he, both of them are completely successful in their proper genre. How all that happened is... An amazing story. I'll let him tell it. But it starts in Wisconsin and with sketch comedy and then leads uh, to really interesting places. So please, if you don't mind, go with us. We're going to do some airplanes, some ghost, and it goes on different tangents, but it is a lot of fun. Jerry Zucker. Welcome. Welcome to It Happened in Hollywood. Hey, pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about ghost. Um the reason it came up is because I posted a picture of me at a pottery wheel and like I got 15 responses on Facebook, everyone making the ghost joke. And I'm like, when you, when you have a scene that is that ingrained in the cultural, you know, consciousness, you've done something unbelievable. I mean, you, you must've gotten annoyed at it after a while, but, but it's amazing. This may, I mean, 1990, so we're talking 33 years later. Uh, it's, it's incredible. So that's, that's what made me think of you. It's fun to have a movie that, that sticks, you know, when you make it, you hope that it opens and and does well, that it's still in some way around is, is actually kind of, uh, is actually kind of cool. 
Yes, and totally holds up. I mean, the, that final scene had me in tears. I mean, it was down my face. And even more uh, um, poignant knowing that uh, Swayze died, you know? Yeah, yeah that, was, that was actually a bit odd for me, thinking of him as really a ghost, you know, having him die. It was obviously, it was a terrible loss. And, uh, you know, I, I love Patrick. And, um, I, you know, I was very saddened. But there was also just a... A strange element that, you know, we had done this whole movie where he was a ghost. And he exudes this beautiful positivity. There's something about him and everything you hear about him is that he was like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of like what made me start crying at the end there. He was genuinely a, a big hearted guy. And he had his issues, and he had his stuff with his dad, and you know, and uh, I, all the things drove him to be an actor. He had a big heart. He was a good guy, and and the other thing that I noticed uh, very early on was that he was playing with Demi and Whoopi, either together or or separately. He was just willing to give them the stage, you know. He 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 never battled them ever, you know. Particularly Whoopi, who was so funny and uh, had had such great zingers, and he would just you could look at him. He's just enjoying it. He's he's just enjoying her moment in the sun in in this movie, so to speak. I always thought that was generous of him, and that's the kind of guy he is. Was yeah, I know that it got offered to a lot of major actors and that a lot of them felt, I, I don't know, it was uh, emascul- not emasculating, but to, uh, unempowering to be a goat, to be dead for the whole movie. Well, it is difficult because you don't have any, um, you can't interact with people. So you can't argue with people, you can't confront people, you can't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of people actually read the script and and thought, how are you going to do comedy and tragedy in one movie? Uh, Some of them thought, this just won't work. But I think mostly with actors, um, it was a reaction to the nature of a character who can't interact with people and can really only talk to himself except for Oda May and then of course she can't see him she can only hear him right so it's a it was an odd uh, role and it was also a very hard in your sleeve kind of role Mm -hmm. that I think maybe some actors were uncomfortable with and Patrick just fully embraced that Mm. and then of course you know, I think if they don't know that you directed both of these things, you are the airplane guy. <laughs> Mayday! 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 Mayday, what the hell is that for? Mayday? Why, that's the Russian New Year. You know, we'll have a big parade and we'll serve hot or dirty. And, um, I mean, Airplane, what is there to be said? I watched it again yesterday and I realized I must have seen this movie a hundred times. Like, I knew every line, every scene. And, you know, I would say Airplane defined my sense of humor as a kid the same way Mad Magazine did. There are certain, you know, tenets that were huge in terms of defining what I thought was funny. And Airplane probably was at the top of it all. Um, so to go from that broad comedy to Ghost, which is, uh, you know, very, like you said, hard on your sleeve, very tender film, um, I'm sure uh, shocked a lot of people in Hollywood. It was an odd uh, um, transition in a way, but when we, after Ruthless People, which was the last film that David and Jim and I co-directed. Bette Midler. Bette Midler, Danny DeVito. So good. Yeah, Bill Pullman, uh, Helen Slater. Anyway, um, 
we, uh, you know, we decided, okay, we're each finally now probably capable of directing our own uh, film. We wrote The Naked Gun together, but my brother David directed it, and uh, I was looking around, and I didn't really want to do another satire. I just kind of felt that deed on that, and I was having lunch with our executive on The Naked Gun, Lindsay Duran, at Paramount, and um, I said, well, what do you have? She was talking about some uh, some films. She said, and then there's my favorite film at the whole studio is this script called Ghost, uh, but it's not really a comedy. And I said, well, I'm not necessarily looking for a comedy. I'm just looking for a good piece of material mm. and something that I can relate to that feels like it's right for me. And so she gave it to me to read. And I'm a terribly slow reader. Over the years, I've been really bad at at not reading enough. And but my wife read it and said, "You've got to read this. This is this is terrific." So okay, okay. And I read it, and I really, you know, I thought, um, you know, I responded to the heart and humor, which I love, and the fact that it was floating off the ground, that it wasn't gritty, realistic drama. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. And then, of course, when Bruce Rubin, who wrote this script, found out that the uh, the co-director of Airplane was going to <laughs> direct his uh, beautiful spiritual love story, he, he cried. <laughs> not for the right reasons. Yeah, not for, yeah no, no, not not imagining how beautiful the film would be, no, um, and and because this was this was he a, pictured a ghost with an exclamation mark. Yeah, and and for Bruce, this was an important film for him because of his deep belief in uh, in the spiritual world. And mm-hmm. uh, we met, and then I don't think anybody from the you know Bruce and Lisa Weinstein, who who's the a producer, and I think they were kind of horrified, actually. But Bruce called me and said, let's have lunch, or no, dinner, let's have dinner and and just talk, not about the movie, you know, not a working thing. I said, sure, fine, great. So we went out for dinner, and we just hung out together and talked, and I think at the end of it, he thought, okay, this guy may not be my first choice, but I can... I can work with him. He has a good heart. You know, he's a decent guy. He's not like crazy. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, we proceeded on. And in fact, it, for Bruce, it was great because he became a partner. I'm I'm I like working with writers. You know, I am a writer, and also this was really his story. And so it was, you know, for me having Bruce around all the time was like someone making a war movie, having a general <laughs> there to say, no, 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 they wouldn't carry their guns like that. Or, or you know, they, this, this, they wouldn't say this or that. And there were a lot of times when we were, you know, we went through 15 drafts, drafts of the script or whatever. And uh, there were times when I would say, oh, Bruce, what if this happens and that? And he would kind of say, well, yeah, that's not the way it really happens because for him, even though he, it's not that he believes literally in subway ghosts that's, you know, trying to break into cigarette machines. I wasn't supposed to go. I'm not supposed to be here. Oh. Oh. Oh, I'd give anything for a drag. 
wanted to stay true to the right metaphors. So it was, uh, it turned out to be, I think he had more input than he probably would have with, uh, with better directors. <laughs> well, not better, but maybe a different director. Yeah. So, um, so he was on the set or? Yeah, a lot, everything. I mean, I, I like having partners. You know, the whole beginning of my career was with two fantastic partners, my brother David and Jim Abrams. I don't know. I didn't want to be alone. (laughs) And also, as time went on, we really hit it off. And in fact, are still really, really close friends. Oh, that's nice to hear. We became best friends and and we did movies together subsequently and that I, uh, you know, produced, Bruce wrote and directed. It was a great relationship. It's it's nice to hear because, of course, you you often don't get that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, it was, I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I just... I think there are certain movies, and it's probably it's not just movies. It's it's anything that just feel like they were meant to be. There were a mm-hmm. lot of things that felt that fell into place. I've talked to other writers, directors, producers, and there were certain movies like how lucky we were, were we to have to get this cast to wind up at this studio to have you know this these things come together. And then there are movies where you're just battling it the whole way, and it never never works. Hence a classic comes out of it and uh, here we are talking about it 30 years later. I love, I love that magic, you know, because it's so yeah. hard to bottle that magic. And Patrick was interested early on and I rejected him. I, 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 you know, I was just, I wasn't a fan of his movies other than, you know, Dirty Dancing. It was great, but it was, you know, very different and he played, uh, you know, there was a couple movies, Roadhouse and some other movie where he kind of played a bouncer or something. I don't know. It was like I had imagined... A Sam with a better sense of humor, in a way. I just kept saying no, and finally Patrick's agent called and said, Patrick would like to read for the role. And I think I literally said to her, look, at it, Patrick Swayze, I'm not going to refuse. You know, he's, he's Patrick, he's a, he's a movie star, but I, I really don't think it's going to do any good. <laughs> and, and sure enough, he, he came in and he read, I could see my movie working in front of me. And we had tears in our eyes at the end when he said those lines, uh, I love you, Molly, I've always loved you. That's where I first could see how well he played with with women. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Patrick loves women. He's very close to his mother. And so he just was great. You can see that, you know, obviously in Dirty Dancing too. It's it's it was one of his strengths. That all became evident in, in the room, and I I was looking in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And also, I realized that the comedy really was it came from Whoopi, not from Patrick. Exactly right. I lucked out, you know, or someone had to put it right in front of my face bef- before I saw it. And it says a lot that he was at that point in his career, and he was still willing to read for you. A lot of actors probably. He wouldn't. really loved the script. He really, really, he really felt strongly about it, you know. And some of the actors who passed, I was reading uh, Harrison Ford, Bruce Willis, yeah, big ones. Yeah, we would. I mean, the studio really blessed them. Really. Paramount believed in the movie, and they offered it to these guys, and, uh, you know, for various reasons, probably mostly the the reasons we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier, either a combination of they didn't see themselves in it, or they just didn't see how the movie was going to work. It's funny, Bruce Willis passed, and I can't even, I don't remember people's comments when they passed, and you never know whether you're getting the, the honest answer anyway. He came to an early, you know, private Paramount screening with Demi and loved it. And although Demi, 
I think, was, you know, it's just really hard for actors to look at themselves first time on screen and you're always, you're kind of only seeing, why did I do this or that or am I right? And he just turned to her and said, this is great. It's terrific. You're great in it. I think that made her feel better. I, I think he's uh, also expressed a regret at not having taken the role. Oh, did he? I don't, yeah. <laughs> but then, of course, he went on to do The Sixth Sense. So I think he, yeah. Yeah. he right? figured Maybe it, it that's works. why. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I would not yeah. be surprised. It's very similar. I kid, I sometimes say that the, those guys passing made me a lot of money because they were all big, gross players, which would have completely diminished my profit participation. <laughs> and those were, yeah, yeah for, for, for any young people, in the old days, we used to have profit participation. <laughs> we used to have movies and cinemas yeah, and, and like, cinema, people paid and for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. People stand in line outside this building where they showed the movie on a large screen anyway. Well, and this movie made something like over $500 million on a $20 million budget yeah. or something. So, I mean, what talk about profit. Yeah, right, right, right. I think it was like the the top grossing movie in England for a while, like of all time, and um, unbelievable. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, I want to go backwards. Well, too late. I'm sorry. You missed it. <laughs> it's over. No. I don't go back. <laughs> uh, please. Um, just uh, when you brought up your brother, um, and well, it was a tri- it's a trio. You went by Zaz, which I love. Z- uh, Z-A-Z, Z- yeah. Zucker, Abraham Zucker. Um, so... I love the fact that how you started, which was sketch comedy, right? Yep. Okay, so let's let's go back in the wayback machine and okay. uh, and and tell me how how it all started. Maybe you could hypnotize me to go way <laughs> way <laughs> back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we knew each other all growing up in Milwaukee. Although Jim is six years older than. I am. And where are you age-wise with your brother? David is two and a half years older. Okay. I'm the youngest. I'm 73. We knew each other because our families were friends. And in fact, our fathers were business partners for a number of years. We went to the same high school. This is Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. Yeah. And then we all went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Although Jim was there before David and I were. Uh, I was a junior. David had graduated the year before. And you know, couldn't find, he wanted to get a job in radio, television, film. That was what his degree, you know, was. Couldn't find anything, which is not a big surprise, I would think. But so he ended up working for my father as a construction expediter. My father was a builder. So, you know, at least he had a job and doing stuff. And a friend of my dad's owned a sick room service company and he had a videotape machine where he would make demos of the product that he would rent and stuff. So dad kept saying to David, why don't you make industrial videos? You know, Bill Kesselman, the guy who had the equipment, will let you use this, make industrial videos. David had, you know, no interest in that. He wanted to make film or a television or something, you know, and comedy. But then one day he went to Chicago to see a a girlfriend, and they went to see a show called Void Where Prohibited by Law. It was an offshoot of of Ken Shapiro's Groove Tube. So what Ken Shapiro had done in New York was he had made a a series of funny, very scatological video tapes and rented out a a big room and put refrigerators and and couches and stuff so people could sit and watch it. You know, it was a success. And so David saw it and thought, 
oh my God, that's what we can do <laughs> with the videotape. Uh, and he drove right from Chicago to Madison, knocking on my door, you know, practically foaming at the mouth, <laughs> saying, Jerry, we've got to go. Blah, 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 you know, <laughs> uh, we, this was right before semester break. So I was back home and David just by coincidence, ran into Jim Abrams and uh, said, hey, you want to get together with us? We have this videotape equipment. Jim said, sure, it sounds like fun. Jim was a guy with a brilliant sense of humor, but no real aspirations to to be in the movie business or anything. He just never thought of that as a, as a possibility. And then he brought a friend of his, Dick Chudnow, who was with us for part of the journey anyway. So uh, I hope this isn't too long-winded. No, but no, anyway, we've, we, we found ourselves in the basement, the four of us in the basement of a house in Milwaukee, and uh, just making these funny videos. And, and it was, like, amazing. Because Dave and I had made some 8-millimeter films, but, you know, you have a limited amount. You have to get them as an expense in getting them developed and buying. And this, you could just keep doing it and doing it and run as long as you as you wanted and erase it and do it again. And it, it was uh, it was amazing to us. It was such a great play toy. And, uh, and more than anything, the instantaneous nature of it, that you see it back, you, you record something and then watch it back immediately. And, and we just, we had a blast, so we just kept doing it. And eventually we had, I don't know, 20 minutes or whatever of stuff we thought was, was pretty funny. And we showed it to people and they laughed. So it was kind of like Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland. Hey, <laughs> let's do a show, you know. And, uh -huh. and Dick Chudnow had done a lot of uh, um, improvisational theater and he had even had a little group in... in uh, in, in Madison, he was a he was a, a, a brilliant live performer. He was just great on stage, and so we just combined it. We did a videotape and sketches and uh, you know whatever, and and it was anything goes kind of, and it was very. It was very non-political at a time where everything, or maybe it was just at the end of. Uh, I think when when we put on our show the. The Army Math Research Center at the University of Wisconsin had had been bombed. It ex someone put an explosive in, and that kind of deadened everything. That was just too far. And I think that not everyone, but a lot of people, were really ready for non-political humor. Uh, and I think what year are we talking? Oh, this was 1970. Okay. Yeah. And so we put on our show and, it was, you know, 70 seats. We actually built a little theater in the back room of a bookstore. It was a perfect location. And we, you know, the, we had these, uh, bought these old Abbey Rents chairs for a dollar a piece, which is what we charged for admission. <laughs> so it was, you know, it seemed appropriate. But uh, it was, it was great. It was fun. It was just, and it was a lark. Hey, try this, try that. And as time went on, we started to say, well, wait a minute, this, that's not our humor. This is. No, this doesn't fit. We, we want to say, And so a style started to uh, uh, emerge, and, uh, and it was great every night to be in front of a live audience. And I think that's, that's sometimes what, what's 
missing today when young people do, you know, make film or videos or whatever and put them on YouTube. You have numbers and downloads or likes, but it's not the same as laughs. And hearing the laughs every night was what taught us what's funny and what isn't. And we developed, you know, our own rules for our style. And we did the show in Madison for about a year. And then at some point, we just sort of said, wait a minute, this isn't just a lark. We love this. We want to continue. And so we packed everything into a U-Haul truck and took it to Los Angeles. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and then and then opened Kentucky Fried Theater on Pico Boulevard in, in L.A. So it wasn't called Kentucky Fried uh, Theater until you got to L.A.? No, no. It was called Kentucky Fried oh, Theater in Madison. It was. Yeah. Yeah, we were sitting in a restaurant in Madison trying to think of a name for the theater. You know, everyone was saying just joke names, you know, stupid names. And someone looked across the street and saw uh, there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. And they said, how about Kentucky Fried Theater? And I think they they meant it as a joke, but we all, the rest of us said, wait a minute, that's, that's good. We like that. <laughs> And it stuck. And then, of course, uh, your first movie was Kentucky Fried Movie. Right. Did Kentucky Fried Chicken ever have any issue with uh, that? It's funny. In, in Madison, Wisconsin, they sent a letter to the phone company saying, you know, we cannot allow the, the theater with a the similar name to be, <laughs> to be listed in the phone book or whatever. I don't know. They that had was their some. <laughs> yeah. They had some. Well, I mean, that was the thing. I don't think they, they really are going to would compensate anything by suing us, maybe. But the phone company sent a, their legal department sent a, sent a letter back that said, until we have a legal order, government, whatever, we're going to continue to list both of them. So, and that was it. They, we never really heard from them again. I guess I should say there's something in the water in Madison, because isn't the onion from yes, Madison? Yes, Well, there's a Midwest sense of humor, a very a, a self-deprecating sense of humor. And I mean, there were at least 10 guys in, in my high school that were funnier than we were, you know, or as funny or whatever, and they were able to get regular jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you went, you, know, you were the only ones who went for it. Yeah, we were the only <laughs> ones that went for it. And really, you know, I remember thinking at the time, it was not like... It wasn't exactly like, gee, should I take a lark on this theater in Madison or get my degree in medicine, you know, or, uh, you know, become a doctor or something. I mean, I just don't know what else I would have been capable of doing. My degree was in education, and I taught high school in Madison for a semester as my, you know, as part of my schoolwork, which was kind of fun, but I don't think I would have wanted to do that. I just don't know what else I could have done. Were your parents supportive of this whole uh, They effort? were, actually. I mean, they thought we'd be back in a few months. <laughs> but they were very supportive. My dad uh, helped us get some carpeting that we needed to take with us and ar arrange some things. And my mother cried when, when we left, although I always suspected maybe that was because she feared we would be coming back. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, my, they, they, were, they were great, though. And I think for my, my dad thought it'll be good to get it out of our systems, you know, and also we'll learn stuff. Whatever happens, good or bad, it'll be great education for us. And they also gave us money to start because we needed some money to live on and to build the theater. We rented an old warehouse and built the theater. On it, Pico. On Pico, yeah, which is where my brother David's knowledge of construction <laughs> came in handy. <laughs> See, so that year he spent as a construction expert was not a waste. <laughs> 
how did John Landis discover you guys? So that would be a big break for you, right? Uh, you know, we didn't know anything. We decided we kind of wanted to write. We wanted to write a movie, and this was. I mean, when we first came out, we didn't know whether it was going to be a performing group or a TV. And I think we had a. We were on TV a few times, and it was just not a good experience. It eats up material very fast, and we're not fast uh, mm-hmm. writers. So we decided we wanted to write a movie, but we we had never seen a movie script. We didn't know what what to do. And David was watching the Tonight Show one night, and Carson's guest was. This young 21-year-old kid who had directed a movie called Schlock, John Landis. <laughs> and so David thought, really, gee, he's only 21. Maybe he'll talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, a little logical. And so he called the di- distributor and asked for John's number, and they gave him John's number. He calls John, and John says... How did you get my number? And the, and he said, and David said the distributor gave it to me. And John said, "What? He gave you my number?" You know, he was. But he, but after that, he was very nice, and we invited him to the show, and he came to see the show, and he liked it, and so we started talking to him about uh, us writing a movie. And after the lunch, he said, come out to my car, I'll give you a script and you can, so you can see the form. And he gave us a script called American, An American Werewolf in London. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he hadn't made it yet. It was just he had written it. I remember reading it and really liking it. And, you know, I'm not sure it was, whether it was because it was the greatest script I had ever read, or maybe because it was the only script I had ever read. I'm not... <laughs> Not sure, but no, it was a really good script, clearly. It's just funny because Griffin Dunn was on last season and they made him go to a special place and like they handed him the script, but then they took it away from it. It was all top That's secret. Funny. But he's That's just funny. handing it out to you out you of know, his car. If anybody had asked, I would have given him my copy. But, but uh, anyway, so then we started writing. This was actually before um, Kentucky Fried Movie. We wrote a very rough draft of. Uh, airplane and uh, well what happened is I should step back we used to record um, late night television because some of the funniest ads were on the really cheap Mm -hmm. funny ads so it was kind of trolling for you know we just set it to record all night and we were zipping through the ads and in between the ads was this movie Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same story as Airplane. We bought the rights to it. Down to the poison fish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. <laughs> you know, and they're down to the line. Can you face some unpleasant facts? The life of everybody on board this plane depends on two things. Finding someone who not only can fly this plane, but who didn't eat fish for dinner. <laughs> Everyone on board depends upon just one thing. Finding someone back there who can not only fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. <laughs> it gets a laugh in the movie, but that's <laughs> absolutely... Um, uh, it, you know, that's a for airplay. Really, so much of it um, we wrote from looking at old movies and, and seeing the straight line and saying, oh, we should do this. You know, someone in some movie actually said... I um uh, surely you can't be serious. You know that was that we we didn't make that up. We could never make that up. All we could make up was and, and don't call me. I am serious and don't call me Shirley. Uh, but anyway, so zero hour was there, and we thought, wait a minute, let's make a good comedy. 
And, and to satirize something, we kind of need to laughable, but we also need to have some affection for it. And we loved Zero Hour. I mean, it was actually a great... So you could teach film structure from that movie. It's just, it's really perfectly structured. It tells a story. You know, we wanted to see how it came out. You know, we were, we really, uh, we loved it. And kind of every time we watched it or a, or a scene from it, we sort of got absorbed in it and liked it, you know, mm-hmm. but yet we still were able to make fun of it because it was so intensely serious. The drama, everyone took themselves so seriously, which is great fodder for us. And we actually talked to John and asked him if he would be interested in directing it, you know, and, and he said, yeah, and we were, um, you know, we took it to some places nobody was interested. We really didn't have connections to take it to, like, studios or any major places. There was some guy in Canada who actually wanted to buy it, but we actually, even then, we didn't want to let it go out of our control, really. We passed on that offer, and then... We were all together and just, you know, Ken Shapiro had done Groove Tube, uh, the movie. And, of course, we asked, I don't even remember who our agents were at the time, but we asked them, we said, hey, maybe we sh- could do that. And they said, no, no, it's been done. You can't do that. <laughs> and and uh, we were talking in the car, all of us. I thought, well, gee, we have this show with all these bits. You know, we can just write a lot of new stuff, so maybe we can get the money for that because it'll be, you know, it's, it'll be much less expensive and everything. We said, great, and we all started to write, and John was very helpful in giving us ideas and editing whatever, you know, and then finally we had a script. You know, everyone passed, uh, or all the studios and stuff passed, and then we took it to some guy who had made a lot of money in, in real estate. He, he said he, was, he had seen the show, and he like the script, and he said, you know, the, the budget was like $600,000. He says, well, that's too much for me alone, but maybe I'll bring in a bunch of friends, but I need something for them to look at. You're an unproven entity, you know. You, you guys uh, uh, have never done anything like this. How about making 10 minutes of it, and I'll pay for like, you know, if you can do four bits or whatever it is. And we thought, great, that's fantastic. He said, well, come up with a budget for that. And we didn't. It was $30,000. He looked at it and thought about it and said, no. <laughs> In fact, I think he said, no, I talked to my agent and he said I shouldn't do this or whatever. And that's the meeting where I'm sitting next to John Landis and his, he's got his right leg crossed over his left and he writes on his shoe this guy is a schmuck. <laughs> and, and I looked at it and expressionlessly. And, and the guy looks over and literally he says, what's he writing? This guy's a schmuck? <laughs> and John and I kind of went, oh, 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 oh as, as John's rubbing off the bottom of his shoe. But, but uh, uh, that was kind of an amazing... Anyway, so, so the guy said said, no, but we thought, we said, well, well, we should do this. It was a good idea, idea for him. And so David and Jim and I each put in some money, and my parents put in, uh, contributed a little bit, and uh, we, we made the 10 minutes. And then we showed it to all the studios who all passed. And then we asked a friend of ours named Kim Jorgensen, who owned the new art. He started all those repertory you know, theater, uh, okay. film theaters. As we said, can we show it? And he said, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, just before a film or whatever. And he said, come over, I just want to look at it first. And we showed it to him, and he said, 
this is great. He said, I can get you the money for this. And of course, we didn't believe him, but great. And he went to United Artists Theater Circuit, and they showed it in one of their theaters, and people laughed and made the deal. And so that's how we got Kentucky Fried movie uh, financed. Oh, that's Kentucky Fried. For some reason, I was thinking this was leading to Airplane. Oh, no. this Sorry. This was Kentucky Fried movie, but how it leads to Airplane is then we had enough, you know, we made enough money from our profits in in that film. We stopped doing the theater and we, we rented a little bungalow in Santa Monica and spent a year rewriting Airplane. Got it. Sorry, I, I, I digressed. So you and then you can edit this, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. I, I'm I'm with you now. Airplane was originally supposed to have like commercials in it or something, yes, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, see, I skipped that part. <laughs> I was trying not to be too. No, we actually it was it, it, the first draft. I think it was called Kentucky Fried Airplane. It actually was like the Light Show, where we'd we'd do the movie, show the right, movie, right. and then take a break and do a few commercials. A friend of ours, Lloyd Schwartz was like the first person to read it. He was like the only person we knew who was in show business. He was in television. He was a very bright guy. And he read this a screenplay and said, you know, this is a great idea, this flying movie. There's a lot of funny stuff, but why do the commercials? Take right. those out. So it made sense to us. So we did that. Yeah. Yeah, you were still in sketch mode, I guess. And you're like, no, yeah. here's, here's your first feature. You don't, yeah. you don't need the sketches. Yeah. Since the topic is ghosts, so, but I have a couple oh, airplane yeah, for, questions. <laughs> for, forgot about that. Oh, well. <laughs> no, but I no, I wanted to know about airplane. Joey, you like movies about gladiators? First of all, how did you get Peter Graves to do all that stuff with... Um, you know, the gladiators and the boys and <laughs> the stuff that would, I mean, some of the funniest stuff in the movie, but I'm surprised you got someone as serious as him to do it. Well, when Peter first read the script, he thought it was the worst piece of trash he'd ever <laughs> read. I mean, he really, I think he said he threw it across the room or something like this. You know, why are they offering me this, sending me this or whatever? And I think uh, two things. I think his family, someone, his wife or something, read it and kind of liked it. And But also, Howard W. Koch was a producer on the, on the movie. He and John Davison produced it. Howard W. Koch knows, you know, knows everybody. We would have never gotten through the studio system without Howard. So Howard called Peter and said, come on in and meet the boys. You know, they're really nice. It's not, and they'll explain it to you. So <laughs> Peter Grace came in, and he's a lovely guy. He's just, he was really a nice guy. We talked, and I think we ex- tried to explain to him how we were doing the humor and why it was funny. And, and for some reason, he, and maybe it was partly uh, his family or, you know, and also actors, Actors like to work. And I don't know if he had been done anything, you know, certainly a film for a while. He said, okay. And, <laughs> and, and from then on, he was in for a penny and for a pound. Whatever we asked him to do, he did. And he was great with it, yeah. I mean, you know that no actor in this day and age would say yes to anything that even approached pedophilia or anything like that. Peter actually said there was some time in a grocery store. I was checking out, and there was a mom with a young kid, and they were kind of looking at him like they recognized him. And I think he said something like, have you ever been in a Turkish prison, you know, or whatever. And so I think after a while, he kind of, all those guys kind of relished it. I don't think they, Leslie was the one who really got 
got it. You right. know, he said I would have paid them to do this. I mean, he mm-hmm. he just because he's Leslie was a closet comedian. You know, stuck you know stuck in a leading man body. Mm-hmm. People say, are you surprised that Leslie Nielsen was so great at comedy? I said, after knowing him, I'm surprised that he could put up with all this straight drama all right. those years, right. you know, because he's truly a nutty guy in the best possible sense. He was, he totally got it, was great. Stack got what we were doing and he would, he said, I get it, we're the Stooges, you know, <laughs> and I mean, he knew it and right. he just said, went with it. And Peter was, as, as I said, willing to do whatever he was asked. <laughs> and it was um, Lloyd Bridges who wanted to be funny. It's hard for an actor to be in a comedy and not be funny. That's what you're really asking them to, right. to do. I think they were all surprised when they saw it. They, then they got it. And you can see in Lloyd's performance, he's just pushing it a little more. And he was the one that I remember having to talk to a lot, saying, do, do it take a little bit down, a little bit, you know, a bit more straight or whatever. When I look at the film now, I think, you know, it's fine. It's a great texture. He's terrific in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, he, it's, he's perfect. Maybe it works better for him putting just a little bit of that spin on than it would if he had been as straight as Leslie. It all worked out. And then my other question is the guy... Uh the kind of effeminate guy. Steve Stucker. Yes. I need to know the story of how you found him and, and all that because he steals the movie a lot of times. He's fantastic. So when we first came to Los Angeles, in, in Madison, we had a, there was a guy um, in the group who played the piano. And so we thought, well, we'll just stick the piano on stage and, you know, we'll do some numbers with musical company. It was fun. And so that became a whole part of our show. When we went out to Los Angeles, we begged him to come with us. I think we may have even offered him a partnership, anything, but he decided not to come out. So we were looking for a piano player. When we mentioned that to some friends of ours, they said, Stucker and started to laugh hysterically. Well, who is this guy? And oh no, you gotta meet him. You gotta meet him. And so he comes and he's coming weather wearing leather hot pants and a, <laughs> and his a, a shirt open. You know, and, and, so that was not an act. That was and him. it was oh yeah oh no no it was totally him. I mean he knew what he was doing, but he was <laughs> no that was Steve. You know it it took us a little while. We weren't sure about the show. We were worried because it was so. He was so different. We were so like subtle, you know, and mm-hmm. or thought we were. And uh, <laughs> he was so flamboyant. But then, I, I'll never forget in the first show. I don't think anybody even saw the rest of us. They just loved <laughs> Steve. Steve, we, I could have sent up a flare. They wouldn't have noticed, you know. So we then grew to love him and appreciate what how how brilliant he was. So when we wrote Airplane, we wrote a part for him. It's funny. I should say, we wrote. We would. We would write the setups, but we would have to have to call Steve for the punchlines because <laughs> he could only like when, you know, the guy says, uh, what kind of a plane is it? Only Steve could write, oh, it's a big white one with a red stripe, <laughs> like a big Tylenol package, you know? I mean, it, it, you know, we, we just, you know, uh, the tower, Rapunzel, Rapunzel. I mean, he, he's, he was... Um, he just came up with this stuff, both in the show and in the film. So, you know, I mean, we quickly realized that we couldn't 
we couldn't think couldn't of that kind of stuff. We couldn't write for him. So, but he he was so fast. We'd call him on the phone, and we, you know, I remember he, he was on speaker, and we'd just go through the straight lines, and he'd just come up with stuff just instantly. <laughs> you know, that was how he ended up in the in the movie. What became of him? Uh, he's no longer with us, sadly. Tragically, died of AIDS. We all really miss him. I mean, he also had a lot of family issues and and things that made life and being gay a struggle mm. uh, for for him, but he was magic to be around. We owe him a lot. He was also a brilliant piano player. He actually soloed with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, he was a brilliant piano player, you know. Well, you've given him the gift of immortality yeah. through an airplane because he is just the best. It has that Paul Lynn delivery that you just die for. Yeah. Okay. So that was Paramount, right? Airplane? Yes. And of course, a mega hit for them. It created a genre, really. You didn't have movies like that mm-hmm. before Airplane, and suddenly you had nothing but movies like that. Um, so I assume that's what uh, leads you to Ghost, that, yeah. that you're, you're a favored son at, at Paramount. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I certainly, I don't think any other studio would have given me Ghost, would have let me direct Ghost, but Paramount knew me. We had done a few movies since Airplane. When I got the script, we were in the middle of working on uh, Naked Gun, the first Naked Gun. I think they saw something in in my personality or that I, I, that I wasn't a, a crazy mm-hmm. uh, comedy guy, you know. I guess the point I'm just trying to make is that it was very helpful that I had a relationship there, that, that they knew me. Or at any rate, they, at least they would give it a shot. And I think they wanted the movie to be more commercial. You know, they, they wanted to push the funny. Mm-hmm. And they thought maybe I would take it in that direction. Mm-hmm. Because we still had a, a lot of work to do on the script, I suppose they could have at any point say, said, no, this guy doesn't know and he's, mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't the right material for him and, and moved on. Sherry Lansing, was she uh, the head of no, the studio at this, this point? At the time, with, when we started, uh, it was Ned Tannen. And then it was uh, Sid Gannis and Barry London took over. It, the development was more with Ned. When we were in the making of the movie, it was, uh, it was Sid Gannis. Um, okay, so we've already gone through a lot of the casting. Um, I, I guess I had read that uh, you looked at Tina Turner and Oprah for uh, to play the Whitney, the uh, Whoopi Goldberg part. Is that true? Well, I, it's funny. I think we probably talked about Oprah. I'm I'm not sure. I I don't remember ever. Maybe they just asked about her interest, and she said no. I don't think I would have ever. I would have wanted to read her, and I don't know that she would have wanted mm-hmm. that. Although Tina Turner was in London and actually taped a a reading. Uh, and sent it. Wow. Yeah, which was kind of cool. And also, just on the tape, I still have it somewhere. She's at some point, she says, Jerry, I love this movie. And she's like talking to me. And I'm like, oh my God. I just, I can die now. I've, I've lived a good life, you know. Um, she was great. And she's Tita Turner. She's fabulous. I'm convinced that Whoopi is what made that movie work because she's the one that has to bridge the comedy and the and the tragedy and the reason she's able to do it is because she never leaves her character she established her character and it was consistent and so when she's making a a a, a joke she's still in character and and i think that's why the movie worked despite all these people who said how can you do 
this tragedy and comedy in the same in the same film. The reason is Whoopi Goldberg. Is it true her famous line you in Danger Girl was an ad lib or? Uh... Oh boy, I'm not sure. She did ad lib. I do remember it could have been. I do remember in a reading, um, or maybe a couple readings. She would add lip stuff, and we would write it down and put it into the script. Mm-hmm. Like when she comes into the bank, Patrick n- nudges her, and she goes, oh, or something. And the, and the guard looks at her, and she says, gas. I have gas. <laughs> um, there was a bunch of lines. So it could, it could well have been Whoopi, but I, it, it probably was an ad lib in rehearsal as opposed to on the – on the set. Right, right. It sounds more like a Whoopi line than a Bruce Rubin line. Right, yeah, but exactly. Bruce really nailed that character. I mean, the the really that that character was so was Bruce. It we're just talking about a you know, a bunch of lines here and there. Right. Let's get to the the pottery scene. <laughs> Which we opened with, and uh, do you have a pottery wheel here? <laughs> okay. It is a, a sensual thing. Having taken a pottery class, there is something very quite sensual about it. Uh, sensual about it. Um, why don't you tell us how how that scene came to be? Well, the first uh, script had um, had Molly being a uh, sculptress. She and you know she was hammering away, and she had all these. Uh, big sculptures around that she had done. And that's why she's like in a big Soho warehouse kind of uh, yeah, living that's situation? Part, yeah, that's part of the loft. I mean, also, it's just a cool it's environment yeah. and uh, it's a great space. It's modeled after a, a place that we actually saw in, in New York. But it didn't shoot there in Soho? Or? Just the exterior. Ah. Yeah, the interior was all built. And Paramount, the Paramount lot. Got it. I don't know. I didn't love the idea of, of it's hard chipping a, with a block with a hammer and a, a chisel is, is kind of a, that isn't sensual. <laughs> and I was, we were in a mix session for The Naked Gun and uh, one of the mixers, I wish I remember her name, or one of the, no, she was a sound cutter, I think. So she, we were sitting together on the other side of the window and and she she's reading this magazine. It's a, a pottery magazine. But the first thing I noticed is these pots were were these huge, tall, you know, we have them in the movie now, beautiful works. And, you know, I think I always thought of pottery as, you know, just like a bowl or a vase or an ashtray, you know, that kind of a thing. And um, and I didn't realize these things existed. And I said, wait a minute, this is this is great. So it really came kind of my first interest in it was kind of for how that would look on the set. And then when I saw photos of the of working with Clay, I thought that would be great for the two of them. That that would be much better than him coming up behind her and she's you know, sitting chiseling. there with that chiseling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we just said, great. Bruce was great with it. And I remember going to some pottery lessons with Demi. <laughs> she uh, had to learn it. And then I remember one rehearsal where she and Patrick were were just practicing together. We were just doing that scene together. 
And it was just, I could see for both of them on their faces, it was just maybe a little too hot <laughs> for they didn't want to get, you know. It was like there, there, there was something there. So I thought, great. I always thought, okay, that's a great thing, but I don't think I ever thought it would end up being a big deal or I, I don't think accurately gauge its impact, even at the moment. It was actually later when we, we sent a bunch of scenes into the uh, marketing department for trailer stuff, and the head of the apartment then, Nancy Gallagher, called me on the phone, and she said, you know, oh, the footage is great. And of course, they always say that, so I'm not, you know. And, but then she goes on about, the pottery is so hot. Oh, my goodness. I go, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Okay, now the version I read was that... You, when you saw the dailies, you realized it was hot and that you had shot a sex scene. You were like, well, we don't need the sex scene anymore. We have the pottery scene. Well, we had planned. There was a sex scene planned. And I can't remember if it was when we shot it or the dailies. In the scene, we shot that thing of them. And others, we might have dissolved from the pottery or just or from their, they were kissing later. And we could have dissolved from that to a sex scene. But sort of bends her over on the couch and which also makes an end to it. It's hard for me to remember exactly what the moment is. It was either after shooting it or or seeing the dailies that we just said we don't need it. We never shot. You didn't uh, shoot the sex scene. We did scene. not shoot a sex scene, yeah. But certainly you, creator of Airplane, had to have noted the phallic nature of what was happening. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> like it didn't go over your head. It did it? No, no, I didn't. I didn't miss that. But because <laughs> um, of my comic history, I'm actually. I was always afraid of doing something that would get unintentional laughs. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to take it so far. I mean, it, yes, as far, but it's still legitimately a pot that she's right, making. Right. So I think it, if you know, I wouldn't have wanted to you a know, literal take, it any, <laughs> it, take it any further than that, or have her hand gesture on it in a suggestive way or something. You know, <laughs> it was there. The suggestion was there. <laughs> we got it. But um, but it was very hot. I think that's why it worked so well. There yeah. was definitely some chemistry there. And and what I love is that when Naked Gun Two and a Half came out, the main trailer, the first trailer, was yeah. from the brother <laughs> of the director of Ghost, yeah. and it's just a parody of that scene. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I love that David did that. It was, you know, fun to shoot and all that. And they add a, a third pair of hands. That made me laugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an easy scene. You know, it's funny. I'm uh, one foot in the you know, serious drama and one foot in the satire. So it's like, for me, one of the greatest honors uh, for me after Ghost was uh, that Mad Magazine did a parody of it, Right. you know? And I thought, oh my God, I'm, I feel so honored because <laughs> yeah. I grew up with Mad Magazine. Of course, that yes. was instrumental in our, you know, getting into the movie business and doing uh, parody and, and, you know. That's true. They did do the parodies oh, yeah, before they did. you did. They, Oh, yeah. No, they did all that. Uh, scenes we'd like to see and right, right. stuff in the margins, you right. know. And, and uh, no, that was, Mad Magazine was a total inspiration. And then, of course, it's been parodied tons of times. I was looking yeah. online. I mean, everywhere from Family Guy, Two and a Half Men. Yeah. Uh, it's been everywhere has done some version of that scene. I think you count your success 
assessed by how many times you've been parodied. I would think, <laughs> right. you know, maybe not everyone feels that way. But like I said at the top, it's it's such an yeah. indelible, uh, amazing scene. But the movie holds together so beautifully. And like I said, the the last scene did make me cry. I mean, it's just about love, you know, and and what what's what else is there really yeah. so it's very it's very simple it's it's i mean it was a beautiful bruce wrote a beautiful script and um it was even when i got it and we made we made a lot of changes as time went on but it it had a pretty clear beginning middle and end although in the first draft uh Odeme dies and i said no 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 <laughs> she's got to she has to live stick around for the sequel she got to stick around for the, yeah or or just cuz Molly needs a friend or something bruce is great at, at structure and he just knew what the movie was about however at the very end i remember pushing him cuz i said well what's the movie about you know because we need to codify it. At the end of the movie, we need, it's, it's, it's great for them to say, I love you, I love you, and him to go off in heaven. But what is that, what is the thing, the mm-hmm. simple thing? You know, it's funny. We couldn't think of it, and we kept talking. I think we even called some people to ask their, you know, opinions, what they think or whatever. And then Bruce and I were driving in his car, and he just turns to me and he said, the love inside, you take it with you. And that, I was like instantly, yes, that that encapsulates what the movie is about. If you, you know, if you believe that there's something after death, whatever that is, the one thing you ta- you're going to lose all your belongings and money and friends, but the one thing hopefully take with you is the the love you feel inside. And it's a great, whether you believe in all that or not, I think it's a great, it's a great message. It's so beautiful. So the movie, it wins two Oscars, one for Whoopi and one for Bruce for Best Original Screenplay. It's the top grossing film of the year. What happens after that? What, 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 is, what, what, how does that affect you? You know, it was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's fun to watch it play. It's fun to see. You can tell people are genuinely enthusiastic, whatever. Ascending to that position in Hollywood is, is enjoyable. But also, I wasn't that person. Mm-hmm. In other words, I was both talented and lucky. You know, I mean, I'm very proud of my contributions to that movie but there were a lot of people and and really it's you know it started with Bruce he was a partner <laughs> in this um all the way and you know Walter Murch editing he's just he's brilliant and kept me from going in the wrong directions a lot and now I'm in this position where everyone thinks it's me you know in a way it's just kind of weird and then also I was in this place where I was on this pedestal and didn't want to leave it. You don't want to go backwards. You want to do something equally as good. It's just not possible. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say it's not possible. Certainly people, (laughs) Jim Cameron, Steven Spielberg, they've, you know, it is possible. But I didn't know what to do, really. And I read a bunch of scripts that I probably should have directed, but no, they weren't ghost, you know, and I, I wanted to do something that was dramatic and heartfelt, but funny, had humor in it. You know, the thing about Ghost was when I read it, even though I saw things that needed to be changed, I could just feel it was a, it was right for me. You know, I was waiting for something like this and, and also something that I felt was my pitch. You know, I didn't really find that. I ended up making a movie that 
I sh- probably shouldn't have made, you know, and then being knocked off the pedal still, you know, it's not fun, but it's really good for you. <laughs> mm. Was the movie that you should have made Rat Race? No, First Night. Oh, First Night. Yeah, with Sean Connery. Richard Gere and Sean Connery, yeah. They were great, loved working with them. We made an English trip, but there's no reason I should be making a movie like that. I don't even care about the Arthur legend or medieval stuff or whatever. I just thought, okay, this is a really big script. You know, it's a big canvas, and I'm going to take another step or do something. And I mean, the biggest lesson... <laughs> I would want to impart from, you know, from all that is find something that's good for the audience, not for you, <laughs> mm. you know, or that you perceive. Um, I mean, obviously you want something that you relate to and that, that is, mm-hmm. like I said, you're my pitch, you know. I think I thought I was doing something much grander and I think I thought I was, I was thinking too much about what it would do for me or my career. Whereas I think with Airplane and Ghost, I was just thinking, boy this is going to be good for the audience. They're going to really love this. Mm-hmm. Airplane, just these serious guys doing this goofy stuff and ghosts, the themes and the humor. And and uh, and also First Night was a movie with no humor. Mm. It was the wrong choice, I think. I sometimes think that, I mean, you learn as much from your failures as you do from your successes, probably more. And I think, you know, part of life, I suspect a lessening of ego, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, feeling, learning to feel love for others as opposed to working real hard to get other people to love you. Mm-hmm. It was a good lesson. It was, it was painful, but I needed, I needed that. And your brother you know, went on to do the Scary Movie uh, series, right. and he, he stuck to the parodies. You didn't want to go back to that. I didn't really. Oddly, I'm working on a movie now that, that's a parody, but I think I'm ready after all these years to go back. But, you know, I mean, who knows? For some reason, I just I didn't want to keep doing that. And, and also, I think maybe I didn't want to do it without David and Jim. You know, it was so much a, about the collaboration between the three of us, and we really each added different elements. You know, we were very similar in our sense of humor so we could direct together because we all knew how we wanted to to end up but but just added different things to it and so the collaboration was great yeah maybe i didn't feel like doing that kind of a satire again Uh, whereas rat race was just you know, a funny film. It was written by my friend Andy Breckman. I, re- I remember really enjoying it. I love those race movies. Oh, great, movies. Yeah. yeah. No, it was just, it was a lot of, I love uh, Mad, I love Mad, that. Mad World, I love Yeah, that I love that script because of all the physical craziness, you know, mm-hmm. and all those kind of stunts and jokes. Is that the one where they, they go into a Nazi museum? Yeah, oh John Lovett. <laughs> Wait, what is the confusion? <laughs> they... Well, they think, no, the daughter, the daughter, John Lovett's with his family and the daughter, daughter sees a sign that says Barbie Museum. <laughs> it's Klaus Barbie. <laughs> That's a great, That's a great yeah. scene. <laughs> the Klaus Barbie Museum. It's funny no, it's because funny. I was thinking of it recently because of the Barbie movie came out. Yeah. The Barbie movie is coming oh, out. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe think right. of that scene. Look, a Barbie yeah. museum. Right, right, Hilarious. Right. John, is, John is brilliant in that. I love that. <laughs> You'll always be a hero and hilarious to me. you got to keep making movies, whatever movie okay. they are. This was just such an amazing uh, treat. I don't, I don't think you do a lot of interviews, no. do you? <laughs> oh, so I feel so lucky to have you. I, I'm grateful that you asked. Nobody's asking you know <laughs>
<laughs> I'm no, asking. No, no, no. I did it just for you, Seth. <laughs> everybody is asking, but I said, oh, okay, if Seth wants me, then I'm here. Well, I don't know if you know, but I randomly went did it through your lawyer, and he said, I love your podcast. And, How and, funny. And he was like, I'll convince him to do it. Yeah. It heartens me to know that people are listening and, uh, and that you, we could have you here. So thank you so much. This is amazing. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. That was an amazing conversation. Uh, I felt very privileged to be able to learn all of that. And I don't think I'll ever be able to watch either of those films, which are two of my favorites, Airplane and Ghost, in the same way ever again. It's very inspiring. And uh, any story that you know starts with just loading up a car and moving to LA to see what you can do is very inspiring to me. What can I say? If you're out there and you're thinking about doing it, do it. Come on down. And until then, I'll see you in Hollywood.